Hi everyone, this is Arathi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with the past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. An acknowledgement to country. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders, past and present and emerging. We celebrate the continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. And today our guest is Brittany. Brittany is from Rhode Island and her chapter is Language and Literacy Connections. Awesome. I'll pass it over to you, Brittany. Okay. Thanks for introducing me. Um, yeah, my name is Brittany Chulo and I am a speech language pathologist and I currently live in Providence, Rhode Island. And this is my fourth year being a speech therapist, but um, I have been correcting people's grammar for almost 30 years. So it was sort of a natural career path for me. Um, so I love to talk about my work and I welcome any opportunity to do so. So I'm excited to be here. But aside from my speech life, I also am really interested in music. And so I play piano and I play some guitar and I love to sing. And I'm always thinking about how that's sort of a language of its own too. And thinking about communication, how it's sort of a mixture of rules and art and like music and language both seem to fit that definition for me. So anyway, that got super deep, super quick, but uh, <laughs> that's a little bit about me. <laughs> that's wonderful. So Brittany, what, why did you become a speech and language pathologist? What? So I have always been interested in speech and language. Um, in school, I always loved English class. I loved learning about independent and dependent clauses. I was the only person, I think, at my high school who was excited for like the syntax and grammar units. Mm -hmm. It just seemed to like make sense of this system that we all use all the time, this language system. I love to like find the rules to make sense of it. Yeah. Um, and I've always been interested in speech too, in speech sounds. And um, so in college, I studied linguistics and psychology. Yeah. And um, then I worked in a research lab for a while. And uh, we studied cognitive neuroscience. So it was really cool. I got to work in an fMRI lab and do studies on things like working memory and executive functions and um, and my, my goal with that was to learn more about the research world and see if that's sort of what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that is eventually where I'll end up again. But when I was working in that lab, I really, I, I realized that there's actually a field that sort of bridges this gap between the things I'm interested in theoretically, which is speech and language and the brain and actually working with people and making a difference. And so sort of through like word of mouth and Googling, it's like, what's this speech pathology thing? And I ended up getting my master's in speech pathology and loving it. And then now I've been working as a clinician since then. So it's been a kind of a fun, fun, wiggly journey here. That sounds amazing with the courses um, and the subjects that you have been able to study and then now put into practice. Um, tell us about, so two questions. Broadly, what does a speech and language pathologist do? And then more about your work um, with the, with schools? Is it with schools? Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so um, as you know, this is such a tough question to answer because we do so much depending on where we work. Um, but I would say a speech language pathologist helps people communicate and helps them uh, in a medical setting, they'll help them with feeding and swallowing. And so in terms of my job specifically, I'm on the communication side of that. And uh, I work in a school full-time with preschoolers through sixth graders. And I 
absolutely adore every grade and I love what I do. So with many of the young kids working on articulation, so their speech sounds and how they're saying them. Uh, and then with all grades, working with kids who might have a language delay or we call it developmental language disorder. So it's hard for them to uh, learn new vocabulary, put words into sentences, listen to a story in class and answer questions about it. Um, and then more recently, I've been branching into the literacy world as well. I've gotten like, I've done so many deep dives on the science of reading and I'm all about that research. And so it applies to what I do super directly uh, because the more I learn about literacy skills, the more I learn it's like speech and language, but just in a written form. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it might be interesting to talk about how speech, like the interconnections between speech and language and literacy and how we as professionals tend to compartmentalize those three but when we are delivering the message or explaining it we frequently have to explain how they're all interconnected and why working on one part actually will help the workings of other components can you tell us a bit about that oh this is my favorite topic <laughs> you'll have to cut me off i can go for a long time <laughs> oh, please do please do um so I'll think of an example of like a student I have now um, where incorporating literacy has really helped with the speech and language. So um, this is a young child who has a speech sound disorder. So um, it's hard for him to pronounce words correctly. And specifically, one of the sounds he struggles with is S. Yeah. Um, he also has a language disorder. So it's hard for him to put words together into sentences and really understand what people are saying. Yeah. And he also struggles with reading and writing, um, but an amazing kid and he tries so hard and he's so cute. So with him, he's sort of a great uh, case study for me. I get to try out all my literacy skills and see if they transfer across the speech <laughs> and language side too. So for example, for S, um, Traditionally, maybe like when I was first out of grad school, I might have just done a bunch of what's called auditory bombardment. So having him listen to the S sound a lot in different words and having him imitate me saying it and having him practice just saying it a lot. And that is fine. And that would probably work great to help him say the S. Um, but in terms of the language side, if he's not saying S, he's not putting... Uh, plural markers on nouns. So yeah. instead of saying dog, dogs, he just says dog. Or he doesn't have third person singular S. So instead of he plays, he says he play, um, which can sometimes be a dialectal thing, but for him, it's not. And so with the literacy skills, then when he tries to go to write these words, he's not going to write them correctly because he's not saying them correctly. And so what we can do is we can uh, what I what I have been doing is incorporating letters, so the 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 letter S into our practice as much as possible. So he can he can make that uh, connection between the phoneme, so the sound, so he can say it, but also the grapheme S, the written letter S. And so when he he thinks of S in his mind, he can also think of the letter, and that's going to help him with his grammar when he's speaking, his understanding of what S is, but it's also going to help him read it and recognize it and then write it too. So incorporating letters into my speech and language treatment has uh, really made a huge difference. And I, I feel like that's sort of the best cue for kids is to give them the letter instead of, um, I don't know, I might just call, ambiguously call it the snake sound, uh, which is fine sometimes, but also we can incorporate the letter. Yeah. That's right. Thank you so much. So they are your interconnections. And my next question is that with the amount of um, facets we delve into, how do these interconnections play a part in the child's thinking and organizing mm. and planning? So that bridge between language literacy and cognition. Mm. 
Yeah, I think there's so many parts to cognition. I can imagine it impacting many of them. So the the first thing that sort of comes to mind is memory. Mm. And so um, we know that like working memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, are, that's an important part of cognition. And uh, he needs a lot of support with uh, remembering what the S sound is in order to apply it in his speech and language and literacy skills. So lots and lots of repeated practice to support that. Um, so I think there are many other pieces of cognition too, but that's sort of the one that came to mind. Yeah. No, beautiful. Because I was just thinking in relation to um, the students I work with and getting them to compartmentalize, understand the instruction, being able to execute the task, being able to um, actually remember it for a longer period of time and retrieve that information when they're, when, when the demand for that information is there. And that sort of working from accuracy stage all the way through to now they can automatically do it to then okay now it's actually helping their thinking and it's so that ripple effect but it needing to be taken really unpacked and stripped down into the smallest skills possible and then building on those um, skills and just how oh, yeah it impacts their thinking and what they have to do or what they don't have to do for that matter. Yes. And, and especially for the grammatical piece for kids who have trouble understanding grammar or, or longer sentences and syntax. Yes. If you take instructions for any task that they do in the classroom, there's so much complex grammar and syntax in that. And, um, or a word problem, even if the math part of it is simple, sometimes the language is very complex. And so he might, this kid I'm thinking of might struggle a lot with that, not because he can't do the math, but because of all the steps, like you're talking about the planning and understanding the instructions, all the steps it takes to get there. Absolutely. So Brittany, while one of your role is actually working directly with the students and within that, um, take us through a the process of what you would do when a student either knocks on your door or is referred to you? Mm. So um, I would, if just special ed law and logistics aside, assuming this is a kid who will be added to my caseload and parent has consented for an evaluation and all that, definitely start with the evaluation. Um, and evaluation is, is, something I'm equally as passionate about because diagnostics are so interesting to me. Um, and so with that evaluation, what I'm really looking at is all of the components of speech and, and language. And I also have another job where I do evaluations where I can get more into the literacy side. I do some evaluations um, for a private practice and they have some great tests like the TILs that get into the literacy side too. But in my school job, I do mostly just the speech and language tests. And so I'm looking at how is their articulation um, or their speech sound production. And then I'm looking at their language, which is um, phonology. So the sound structure of everything, morphology. So the different parts of word semantics, word meaning and vocabulary, grammar, syntax, how do they put words together into sentences? And then I try to do some sort of discourse level. So some larger level assessment um, related to how do they kind of put words and sentences together to make a story? Or if I read them a passage, can they answer questions about it? So, cause sometimes kids have all the little component pieces but then they sort of fall apart when it's a bigger task. And maybe that's sort of what you were, alluding to earlier with the cognitive piece and these executive functions, those can absolutely influence language as well. So start with the evaluation and then take um, the results of that and um, figure out a good intervention method for them. Beautiful. And once you have, um, once you have got all of your data and you've interpreted it, analyzed it, um, we know that when as speech and language pathologists working with children, whether it's once a week, once a fortnight, 
that's okay, but there has to be a team around the child. Tell us about that team component and how, um, what, what is it like working with a team um, of the child and how to make it effective and efficient so that there is the best outcome? Yes, I love uh, my special ed teams that I've gotten to work with at my current school. And in the past, I feel like I've just been blessed with wonderful people to collaborate with. Um, so I do collaborate with uh, occupational therapists quite a bit. So I actually share a room. In years past, I've shared a room with the OT. Uh, this year, it's a, a she's a wonderful CODA, so an OT assistant. But um, I share a room with the person who's working on fine motor skills and um, incorporating some of the sensory stuff and self-regulation. And so just sort of through the nature, the organic nature of being next to someone all day, we have collaborated and co-treated on some kids, which has been really fun. So I'll bring the language piece. Oh, it would be great for them to try to say a sentence with prepositions. And then they'll bring the maybe motor piece. Oh, we can practice prepositions while we work on gross motor skills, like hop on the green ball or whatever it is. And then we're, we're sort of targeting both things at once, which has been really fun. Yeah. But I also love to collaborate with reading specialists, of course, um, just because of that natural link between what they're saying and what we're working on in their oral language and what the reading teacher is probably working on is, is a very similar thing in their written language. So I also love to collaborate with uh, reading teachers and just classroom teachers too. Yeah, beautiful. And what about um, the parents? How, yeah, the ease of connecting with them or difficulty in terms of logistics one during the school times, how does that work? Yeah, I think that um, because of COVID, uh, it, everything has sort of changed in terms of how I work with parents in my school, um, for the, for the, uh, parents and families who had the resources to be able to get their kids online for online therapy last year, I felt like I was closer than ever with them. And it was awesome actually, because they were always there for our sessions and we could talk about carrying over skills and, um, I felt like they really understood what the child was working on and, and like the value in that time. Um, but we, we also know that COVID was and is so um, devastating for mm -hmm. so many families financially and, and otherwise. And so for those families, I mm -hmm. understand that like the child's talking skills comes way after being able to feed them and have it giving them a safe place to live. And like, so it's sort of been, been um, difficult to navigate some of that uh, just through COVID, but um, in a normal non-pandemic world, um, parents are the best therapists because you can teach them what to do at home. Um, and then even with some of the virtual learning, it's been cool to really directly teach them how to do that. Absolutely. And I just, you talked about carryover skills. Let's dig a little bit deeper into it. First of all, what, what do you mean by carryover skills? And why is that important for the child's um, outcomes and just treatment plan? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it is the official marker of learning. I don't think that they, the child has really learned a skill unless they are carrying it over. So also doing, applying it in another context. So typically I think of carryover skills, like if I'm working on, I'll just keep on the S train. So if I'm working on maybe helping this child say plural S in my therapy room, I don't care if they can do it perfectly for me a hundred times in a half hour, if they're not going to understand that they also need to do it in the hallway and at recess and in the classroom and when they're at home, like, I mean, need to make sure that there is some plan in place where the teacher is maybe also cueing them for it and their parent also understands to cue them for it. Um, 
and just to build that awareness. So they're not just learning the skill in isolation, like, oh, when I see Miss Brittany, she makes me say these words a bunch of times. But uh, when I see Miss Brittany, I'm working on the skill that I'm also working on actually in my classroom. And my mom is also cueing me for it at home. And that goes back to the team piece. It's so important. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I um, kept, when you were talking about carryover from the clinic room or the therapy room to the classroom or to the house, I just kept thinking of bridges and we are literally working on bridges every time um, from the point of that accuracy to competency in whether it's they're speaking something or they're listening to what someone has said or they're having to read or they're having to write or just engage in that social um, context, which is really interesting. Yeah. So oh, true. Yeah. And we're constantly, yeah, having to sort of find these bridges and actually go, where, where do we, how do we carry it over? And in fact, if anything, sometimes I find that is particularly the challenge is they'll be able to do it wonderfully in the therapy room, but it's a, their brain is so used to the cues, so used to the routine. And the minute there's a slight shift in the routine, then there's a different outcome for and mm-hmm. idea of flexibility as mm-hmm. well for that child. That is amazing. Um, my other question is, working with children where English is in their first language, do you have an opportunity to do that? And if so, what, how, how do you approach um, that scene? Yeah, um, most of my students at my school are um, bilingual. So they speak Spanish, many of them speak Spanish, some of them speak other languages at home. And then instruction is in English at school. And um, I firmly believe that we need to approach these kids from a strength-based, an asset-based mindset. So instead of just how do they learn English, they're not speaking English well enough. They're not doing X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. I mean, coming from someone whose job it is to like pathologize and analyze speech and sort of quote, fix it. I think we have to change that perspective when it comes to kids who are bilingual, because actually they're coming to us with a wonderful set of resources already. They know many of my kids will know so much in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so we have, we can use that to bridge this again, bridge this maybe gap between what they know in Spanish and what they're learning in English. And uh, so one example of that is using cognates as much as possible. So words that sound similar in both languages and mean something similar in both languages. Um, And another sort of idea that I've had brewing with one of my literacy friends is um, more about the grammatical piece. So take there's something called a morpheme matrix which is basically when you just split words up into prefix, root word, suffix. And we want to make a Spanish-English morpheme matrix. So uh, some prefixes are actually the same in both languages, like R-E, R-E, or R-E, like it's the same mm-hmm. in English and Spanish. And then S, they have plural S in both languages too. So why not just always be bridging that gap as much as possible throughout the day? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think it's fascinating working with multilingual learners. That's amazing. And just the other day, I was um, listening to a podcast and I can't remember who the host of the podcast was, but it was with Julie Washington and one of the recent papers um, she's written with Mark Seidenberg. And something that stood out very starkly to me was the notion of code switching and why so so Julie Washington was asked why don't you use that term and she's like well when and she explained it so beautifully and it's just sort of there, there's some yeah explanations that just tend to click and it was very much going when we're t- asking someone to switch codes there is that bit of notion of um, one is 
it, things have its time and place and uh, one is right or one is wrong or that sort of sort of underlying connotation and why aren't we able to just use both um you know to for ease of access or for ease of or comfort even yeah yes i i am so excited to hear you mention this um i actually um I know exactly the podcast episode you're thinking of. It's, I have it here. Yeah. Science of Reading, the podcast, season four, episode seven, <laughs> linguistic variety and dialects, That's difference it. not errors. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. So I tried to listen to this episode when I was driving and I had to turn it off because I wanted to sit down and take notes the whole time. And I couldn't do that when I was driving. Yeah. So I, I, I also loved what she said about code switching and how instead of, I can't remember her words exactly, but it was the point of instead of teaching kids to code switch, especially when they have to code switch to standard American English, okay. it's actually always going towards, and she didn't use this term, but it's going towards this like monolingual white standardized, you know, what is the standard? Yeah. Um, and that completely erases so much of, of where they may be coming from and, and how they show up authentically. And so um, I actually have, uh, I'm a moderator for the Rhode Island Science of Reading Facebook group. Okay. And because that's how deep I've gotten into the science of reading. And I posted that episode, a link to that episode in the group. Um, and um one of the, the quotes I had posted with it was um, when we see a child or an adult who is doing something different and they're struggling, we assume that the struggle is due to the difference, but that's pathologizing the difference and we don't want to do that. So even if a dialect is contributing to a struggle, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that it's a disorder. Yeah. It just means that it's a difference we need to pay attention to. And it means that we as teachers need to do something differently. So I liked that perspective. Absolutely. And with what I took away from Dr. Julie Washington's um, explanation might be totally different from what she was saying or what someone else takes away from it. But I think there's such a, there's such a power in allowing for that difference, but also my other thing is that not permitting that difference to almost be an excuse as well. Like it's, it has, I think that could be taken either positively or even in that, oh, because English is the second language, there isn't much we can do about it. But actually we need to know what the difference is. And so once we do know what that difference is, then we can target it. Um, in a specific manner as opposed to just leaving it and once we leave it we know exactly what happens the gap continues to widen mm -hmm. and it's yeah so that that's such a beautiful quote and I just love listening to those podcasts and Dr Julie Washington in particular that skill of just explaining things so eloquently and stating it simply but we know that there's such deep knowledge <laughs> underneath those simple yes. powerful statements. Yeah. And it's exactly what you said. I think that was really her point. And we have to understand the difference yeah. to, to make sure that gap, the opportunity gap doesn't widen. And, and that comes down to teacher knowledge. So we need to be aware that like saying F where maybe a speaker, like I might say TH mouth, but if you pronounce it with an F at the end, you know, that is a valid piece of African-American English. And it is not something that they need to be referred to me, for example, for, mm -hmm. for speech and language treatment. It's something the teacher can be aware of and say, oh, I, like that's how you say it. And so that makes sense that that's how you'd spell it. Here's a different way. Here's how you might do it you know, when we're writing in class or whatever. Yeah, that's exactly right. And actually, after listening to that particular episode is when, so we, we have a similar thing in Australia as well with the articulation of 
as a substitute for TH sounds and then going, all right, we need to correct this straight away. And, you know, even a few years ago or like up to last year, I would have said, yes, I understand that because I see that sort of link between the speech sound uh, word itself and then um, into the literacy component. However, after listening to this episode, I was like, wow, yeah, we really do need to avoid placing the judgment, but actually explaining or trying to explain it differently and going, okay, this is what we will be using in the classroom, but really trying to do it without that judgment because we don't really know where they, yeah, what the other part of the story is. Yeah, and I, I think I, I projected my own uh, ideas. Jul- Dr. Julie Washington didn't go so into, you know, whiteness and that standard, but um, I think that that is sort of related. And in, in, in when we think of racism and how that shows up in insidious ways in the classroom, from sometimes very well-intentioned teachers, you know, this is this is one of those ways thinking of it as systemic, like it's, it's happening in the school system, because this is how, what we're trained to do. And so we need to catch ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, back to our, back to your chapter, Brittany, is there, so we've, we've covered what your role is as a speech and language pathologist with the child when working directly with the child when working with the child's team, when working with their parents. um, Are there parts that I've missed out, something you do that is is incorporated into your your working and your system that helps um, create awareness of communication and literacy, the importance of working on these aspects or even identifying um, children early how do you yeah go with that education component or awareness component yeah it's something I'm trying to do more of um, what I have been doing is trying to lean into um, moments and, and sort of insert myself into staff meetings that's the honest way to say it and say hey can I talk to the staff for 10 minutes about syntax like yeah. during our staff meeting and and then our admin miraculously says yes. And then I, so the other day I had this like quick presentation on syntax. I was like, here's what it is. Here are some red flags. You know, if they're not doing this or putting these types of sentences together, maybe refer to me. And here are, here are like five simple ways you can embed syntax practice into your classroom. Um, and so, uh, that's one way. Um, and I, I think that some teachers have found that helpful, but um, I, it's hard to know what to focus on because there's so much in our field. And I want to I wanna spew information at people all day, but I also recognize that they might not always want that. So I'm still working on the awareness piece, definitely. Yeah. And um, the other phrase you've mentioned is science of reading. What, what is it? So the science of reading is um, basically this body of research and knowledge that we have over the past few decades um, that tells us the uh, most scientifically Uh, or evidence-based sort of way to teach reading. And so what does the research say about word recognition? What does the research say about language comprehension? And what does the research say about all these pieces in between? So it's it's basically just referring to this huge body of research, uh, referring to best practices in in literacy. Yeah, that's, there you go. That's beautiful. And it's, it's a it's taken from different components of there is your phonics, but there is the way the brain works and actually how it all amalgamates together to for this outcome to be possible. The language part. And where do you get all of your, like in terms of professional development, your own capacity building, how does that work um, as a professional? 
Um, well, this is a terrible answer, but uh, Instagram is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I learned about so many, not just from like professors and, and people who are very renowned in the field on Instagram, but also they'll post about talks and things they're doing on Instagram. And then I learn about it that way. So honestly, social media. Which really actually since, since COVID um, last year, March, social media has really Facebook, um, Instagram, it's really ramped up the amount of quality information that's being shared. And again, you know, we've talked about bridges, one of the massive or the longest bridge has been from theory to practice. And in order to sort of mitigate that bridge, all of this um, quality webinars and information and PD, the chunk-sized PDs have come out, which has been so helpful. And all those recordings being made permanent and freely available has been an absolute blessing in disguise. Um, absolutely yeah and tell us about your so you said you've been a speech and language pathologist for four years and have you been working in the same school for four years um yes I was part-time in my current school and part-time in a different school for my first year and then my second year to now I've been full-time in my current school so uh, yes, but in a full-time capacity, just a few years. Beautiful. Take us through a little bit of that journey. How has it, what did it start off like um, at the beginning of the four years and how has it evolved or transformed to what you are doing now? Um, well, it's so funny thinking back on my, my CF, so my clinical fellowship is what we call it here. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but that first year working out of grad school and um, we, uh, I was, it, it's sort of unique. You don't usually work in two different places for your clinical fellowship year, um, but that's just sort of how the cards fell for me. And so I worked two days a week in this school I'm in now. Uh, and I was only working with grades three to six then. And then um, I was working three days a week at this private school. Um, and both experiences really uh, have shaped um, how I approach my clinical practice, especially at the private school. It was such a unique experience because uh, it was um, a collaborative, it's this unique school model where every classroom has a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, and a special educator. And so every week you're meeting together and you're collaborating on lessons and throughout the day, all day, it's sort of like co-treating and carrying over skills and those things that we talked about earlier um, all day, every day throughout the day. Uh, and because the school is so small, um, the team is able to sort of carry over those skills. So, so while I didn't stay at that school, yeah. I have taken that collaborative nature of things, of working um, with kids and absolutely still try to do my best to do that in uh, the public charter school that I'm in now. Yeah, that's beautiful. And the essence of that collaboration, because it really works towards meeting the child, meeting the child's needs, yes, but actually meeting them as a whole person as opposed to pulling parts of that child. Into oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I've, I've even started trying to um, co-treat with the social worker at my school because there are some kids who meet with me and then they meet with the social worker separately and it's usually worked out fine just seeing each of us separately but their communication is integral to whatever they're processing and talking through with the social worker and then similarly their mental health and well-being is critical to to the skills that we're working on too and how I'm showing up with them and how they're showing up with me and so having us all together uh it's amazing because then I can learn from her and I can watch her modeling 
calming strategies, or I can watch how she navigates when they maybe say something that I wouldn't know exactly how to respond to. So it goes past just special ed interventions, but also I think there's a lot of amazing just collaboration that we can do with mental health providers too. Absolutely. And you talking about mental health sort of um, triggered my question, but in for speech speech and language pathology, we have there is the concept school to prison pipeline, which is a really well-known one in our field and one that's being researched quite um, thoroughly. There needs to be more research into it, but the idea is that the communication barriers or or difficulties in communication and literacy are leading to different paths and or different trajectories, which aren't great trajectories for our students. Um, and early intervention is key. Do you have you witnessed that particular component in your work with the students, um, their mental health or their yeah different impacts of why we do what we do? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think the, the most obvious example that comes to my mind is reading, um, because we know that a lot of, um, at least in the U.S., a lot of um, uh, adolescents who are in prisons read at less than a fourth grade reading level. And I can't remember the percentage, but it's an extremely high percentage um, and have a language or learning uh, disability. Um, and that is, when you think about all of the legal stuff that they have to navigate at such a young age, if they also have difficulties, maybe reading what their lawyer showed them or understanding what's going on in the court because of the vocabulary or the complex language, that is just, it's so unfair um, to have them go through that. And, and I think it starts even way before they get to that point. Um, and, and my job is more of the prevented, hopefully more of the preventative piece, um, and helping them just build all of those communication skills. So they're, they're able to rely on them, uh, however their life, you know, what, whatever journey they take, um, and equip them with that success and hopefully, yeah, lead to less, less of this pipeline. No, beautiful. Thank you so much for that, Brittany. Um, we'll have a couple of wrap up questions, but is there anything, I know we've talked really broadly about a lot within your chapter, but are there things you've wanted to share that I haven't asked or something? Yeah. Just things that I haven't touched on. Um, I mean, the only thing that came to mind was when we started talking and I mentioned music. Um, yes, that's right. I just, I just love that, uh, that connection between language and music. And um, I, I have always found it so interesting. So uh, I, I just am fascinated by that. Do you use music in your interventions? Um, so I do sometimes, um, and I am, I'm definitely not a music therapist, um, but the way that I think it's most easily incorporated with young kids. So when I go into, um, the preschool classrooms at my school, uh, actually just this past week, I ran a circle time. And we sang a little song together. And, and I think that especially for those young kids when they're four years old and you sing them a song that maybe has a certain word in it that you're trying to teach them, like the music just helps it stick so much better. And then as I'm walking past their classroom later in the day, I hear them singing the song and they're practicing that word. And uh, I think it's just such a fun way to uh, incorporate uh, language practice without them sort of even knowing it in this very play-based setting. Um, but also with older kids, I think sometimes when they know something is academic, like if we're working on complex syntax and complex language, yeah. sometimes they shut down immediately. And so the, I think there are ways we're using song lyrics that they really like or um, incorporating 
a topic and usually they're interested in music to some degree incorporating that topic is sort of a, again a, a door into working on these language skills we can talk about like let's talk about drake for 30 minutes like we can do that and practice subordinating conjunctions like that is that works for me um so i think that i try to do it um but i don't do it as much as maybe i want to so it's something i always think about incorporating more that's interesting um I, yeah I, I found music quite interesting in terms of as you said it sticks better in the brain and if there were complex concepts for instance uh, actually there's a youtube channel is it dan the rocking man and he uh, was, sounds awesome yeah he actually has got a song for the writing revolution because but so I'm <gasps> no really yes I am pretty certain that sounds has, awesome there are a few different I think it's him Dan the Rocket Man um and he has a because I always use that because but so sentence framework I would love a song I am, you'll have to check him out. He has, yeah, he does. He has Because But So, the basic conjunctions um, song. And then he has the Vowel Helpers. Okay, you have to send those to me on Instagram. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, but he has quite, quite a few interesting videos and it's about all of these concepts, but again, putting it into music and that is something, yeah, just another mode of helping our students or adults for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. The other question, which I should have asked this earlier in our conversation, but sort of thinking about syntax, why, why is it important? First of all, what is it? And then why is it important that as adults, we need to have more knowledge on syntax um, and being more mindful of it um, for our students. Hmm. Syntax is my favorite. So um, syntax is basically uh, the rules that govern our word order and our sentence structure. Um, and so when we think of English, it's things like uh, our sentences usually have subject verb order uh, or subject verb object order. Um, and then there are certain rules for how we can make sentences more or less complex. So in terms of my intervention, I'm really looking at uh, most of my kids speak in very simple sentences. So maybe they say, I don't know, I woke up, I ate breakfast, I came to school. Giving them more complex syntax would look like teaching them to say, after I woke up and ate breakfast, I took the bus to school. And so putting those ideas all together actually into one but more complex sentence um, is a very powerful tool for them in terms of their oral communication. But it's important for teachers and interventionists to be aware of as well, because academic texts have so much complex syntax. They have many, many different clauses um, and often require a lot of syntactic expertise to be able to parse apart, okay, what is this word referring to three lines down here, even though the noun it's referring to is way up here and all of this stuff in between is just like clauses Yes. extra clauses describing this word. So it's it's really complex in academic texts and kids who struggle with language and communication often struggle with reading comprehension because of that complex syntax. So it's important for the oral skills and also for their reading. Absolutely. And the other piece I was thinking about is when we as adults are giving a student instructions and and particularly from a classroom standpoint. So you are providing instructions to every child in that classroom, but a lot of the times those instructions can be quite complex, not only what they have to do or the, that numerical value within the instruction of how many parts there are to it, but how we have formed that sentence can also be quite complex, 
complex and that's where the syntax comes in um to play yes as well and that's that oral language um part of it i suppose and yeah. yeah, no, it's it's both the production and the comprehension of complex syntax. And so you're sort of getting at that, the comprehension of, of complex syntax in a teacher's direction. I, so many um, teachers will give, like you're saying, very complex instructions without even realizing it's very complex. So it's like, before you line up, put your book in your bag and put your pencils away. And so for my kids, understanding the before you line up part, like that is going to be lost on them. They're just going to go line up and maybe the teacher thinks they're being defiant, but really they just, that's all they processed was you line up, right? When they didn't hear the pencil and the book and all the other stuff. So absolutely, it's, it's definitely something to be aware of. Yeah, beautiful. And the final, do you have any key takeaways for anybody listening to this chapter? Um, I guess just make sure you're aware of your complex syntax and in your instructions. <laughs> if there's one thing I want all teachers to know, it's actually that. <laughs> but um, no, I think, uh, and, and maybe also just the collaboration piece is so important. I think for anybody working with any child anywhere is just working with the whole team, the parents, the other teachers, the other interventionists. So that might be the takeaway. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Brittany, for spending this time talking about your passion, your love for language and literacy. And I hope, yeah, the chapter is connects with a few people and for anyone that's listening if you think that this chapter will connect with your friends or your networks please feel free to share it um, and I will try to share some of those links actually maybe that podcast um, episode with Dr Julie Washington um, Dan the Rocking Man's YouTube channel that will be really good and oh what about the Rhode Island Facebook group is that something that's accessible to international audience or is it just for Rhode Island well it's actually just for Rhode Island educators um but there is another group called science of reading what I should have learned in college and that one is open to anybody and it's like the huge group um we're just one small chapter of that um and so you can join that that Facebook group which is an amazing wealth of knowledge Beautiful. Thank you. So we'll put those um, links in the notes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you so much. This is so fun.